Constructive Voices, the podcast for the construction people with news, views and expert interviews. Coming up on this episode of Constructive Voices, Henry MacDonald has been looking into a big topic for the industry, plastic waste. How can we cut down on using plastic? What alternatives are there? And why should we be bothered about it anyway? Pete the Builder's back to share his experiences of apprenticeships. He's been one, he's hired many, and he's a big fan, despite the potential for things to go wrong. And keeping people safe has been in focus for everyone in the last year, and the construction industry has made great strides over the years to ensure site safety. But what can we also do to ensure that the health part of health and safety is given greater status? Constructive Voices, brought to you by Lewis Access, British-made scaffold towers and access products. Hello, I'm Steve Randall, and before we do anything else, a big thank you for all the feedback on social media and email after we launched our first episode two weeks ago. We really appreciate your comments on what you like, what you don't like, and what you'd like us to talk about. And we want to hear your stories too, so please get in touch via the website constructive-voices.com, don't forget the dash, or on our social media. And let us know your views on the topics we're covering. First then, this time, let's talk about health and safety. It's one of those things that's often seen as a necessary evil, like going to the dentist. But keeping the risks that exist in the industry under control is essential. We all want to go home at the end of the working day. The pandemic's created extra issues for sites, but as usual, the industry has risen to the challenge. And Matt Banks has been chatting with Jenny Armstrong, MD of Construction, Health and Wellbeing. We're an occupational health, hygiene and wellbeing company. So we actually just started up just before the pandemic um, and we provide services specifically to the construction industry. We look at health holistically. So we look at things from the work-related prevention side of things. So this is known as occupational hygiene. And we look at things from a more traditional sense in the kind of the clinical services around fitness for work, um, case management, health surveillance. Um, and then now we also look at wellbeing and it's a, probably a big part part of what we do, which is looking at things like campaigns and initiatives, but also looking at cultures of organisations and how we can give the right tools and resources to um, companies to help them create this culture of care and and give the best outcome for their workforce. So we spend a lot of time working on strategies with companies, but our main aim is about this whole holistic approach to health and making sure all these elements are considered in what organisations do. Excellent. Thank you. And before we sort of go through the weeds a little bit more, could you just sort of Give a a basic background to how you got to here, what your qualifications are and sort of what led you to, to where you are today. Yeah, of course. So, so I'm actually a nurse. I'm a registered nurse now. And I um, kind of started my career in emergency care, um, which meant I ended up um, moving into construction about 12 years ago and worked on the um, London 2012 development. So my, my role there was kind of a, a site-based nurse and we was kind of there to help the construction workers when things had gone wrong or to give them advice around health and well-being. Um, and whilst I was there, I kind of recognised that, you know, prevention is so much better than cure. And it's something that's embedded into us as nurses that if we can prevent things rather than having to treat them at the end is much better so there we kind of worked with um, some some really amazing occupations 
occupational hygienists who kind of inspired me to think, right, there's more that we can be doing around health. So I kind of retrained, worked as an occupational hygienist. And since then, I've also done a lot of some qualifications around safety. Um, I also trained to be a yoga teacher, which was a bit more about a passion for mine rather than necessarily about what I can do in my company. But I do think probably in the future, there'll be more kind of yoga inspired initiatives within the construction industry. I'd like to see that happen at some point. Hmm, interesting. We're talking about mental and, and physical health here today. And obviously, we're going to talk about the, the coronavirus and, and the pandemic and, and how it's affected mental and physical health on construction sites. But if we can just quickly look at life before the pandemic, what do you think the main challenges in the construction industry were to physical and mental health? God, it feels like a lifetime ago thinking back about Yeah, um, I know. Pre, it's pre- impossible, isn't it, sometimes? <laughs> definitely, definitely. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, unfortunately for, for construction, health issues have been a, a problem that we've faced for for a number of years and um, it's quite a significant problem for construction. Um, A bit of a shocking statistic is for every one safety fatality that we have, there are a hundred fatalities that are related to a health issue. Many of these things are to do with respiratory issues, so people that have been exposed to certain dust and fumes and even, you know, asbestos is something that people are more commonly um, aware of. Um, So we see, you know, a number of people that actually, you know, his health and their lives are are significantly impacted. And there's also, you know, about 80,000 people each year that suffer with some sort of work-related health issue. Um, These might be things like musculoskeletal disorders or damage to their hearing or working with vibration impacted on on their hands. And it's, it is a you know a shocking thing for the industry to deal with, but you know also for a lot of our workers, they they end up having to leave the industry much younger than they would have done and retire much earlier, um, and it significantly impacts on their quality of life. So we've got a big challenge in in front of us to try and address that. The good thing I suppose about about health risks is we know what causes all these problems. We know what why the reasons are that we have to do some stuff about it. Um, so it doesn't mean that things are always going to be that way. It's just making sure we put the right focus. And attention on on it now to prevent these people from getting these health issues um, some years down the line. Um, and I suppose we've, we've done some great stuff with safety in the construction industry over the last 20 years and, and health is just a little bit of a step behind. So we're just trying to, to work on that and build it up so it's to a similar kind of space as where safety is at the moment. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned some of the changes that the industry has gone through. I'd like to hear from you sort of what the biggest changes that you have witnessed in, in your time doing this are. So looking at it, I suppose, from a physical health perspective, I think that the mental health side of things is is something that's probably been spoken about more recently. Um, but from a physical side of things, I mean, there's been a lot of focus and attention on just raising awareness of, of the issues that we have. And there's been some some great work from the Health and Construction Leadership Group and also um, the British Occupational Hygiene Society. They, they launched a campaign called Breathe Freely, which was all you know looking at how do we raise awareness of some of these um, health issues that are constructed workers face and and how do we give them solutions to to try and overcome some of them so I think there's been you know a big focus on awareness and then actually making sure that people understand what the problems are um, I suppose with the the pandemic we've had a probably a really good lesson in actually understanding a lot more about health risks um, so unfortunately obviously it's been a, been a very tragic time but there's going to be some learnings that we'll take from this that hopefully will impact on on health risk management going forward so you know things like the basic things about face coverings and respiratory protection how effective they are um, we've done lots about ventilation and making sure the you know the air quality for the workers is good 
Um, and there's been a big bit around, you know, like segregation of workers. So keeping people away from the risks and, and making sure we've got that social distance in, um, which is exactly the same as what you would do for other respiratory issues that we have in the construction industry, you know, separate people from the airborne contaminants. Um, and there's been a lot of focus on how do we protect ourselves from these things, but also how do we protect the other workers that are working around us? And actually, I suppose, you know, in construction, we're so used to having lots of trades and lots of people all in one space trying to work consistently together. So hopefully from all of these kind of learnings that we've taken from COVID, there's going to be, you know, a real push after this to actually say, right, how do we apply this to other health risks? And how do we, you know, put some long term changes into what we're doing and, and tackle some of those shocking statistics that we've that we've had? Um, but that, I suppose, just, is just sort of talking about the physical health risks. There's obviously the mental health side of things as well. Yeah, well, that leads us on to our next question. I think one thing that the pandemic has really forced uh, us to do is to, to really confront mental health in a way that we haven't in the past. And I think it's no different for the construction industry, I'm sure. How do you think that conversation is going, both since the pandemic, because of the pandemic, uh, and sort of generally as well? Yeah, I mean, it's been, it's been a really interesting time for mental health. I mean, obviously, in society, there's been a lot of focus around mental ill health and, and and are we doing the right things to, to the right support for people um i think covid's been a, a really big test for a lot of organizations there's been you know some companies that have done quite a lot about mental health um, before the pandemic even started and i think for those organizations that had spent some time really like looking at the stigma around mental health and starting people having conversations around it i think they found probably dealing with the um, pandemic may be a little bit easier because they had the culture there. They had support networks in place, whether it's mental health first aiders or occupational health or you know line managers that are upskilled in what to do. So I suppose there's been you know probably a lot of organisations that hadn't really thought much about mental health in the past, and they've actually had to try and work quite quickly to put some things in place and and things like this that actually take time to to evolve and particularly around mental health when the workforce have to really trust that what you're saying and having those conversations are, are really meant so hopefully I think for those organizations that probably hadn't done much in the past they've all had a bit of a wake-up call to say actually there's there's so much opportunity here that one to look after people but also if we put the right things in place and focus on positive mental health then it really helps a business to thrive and be the best it can be so I'm sure for most organizations it's going to be top of their agenda for the, for the year to come. I mean, you talk about what organisations are doing. I'd like to hear sort of what what your business has has been doing during the pandemic with some of your clients and, and focusing on how you how you address these these um, physical and mental health problems. Yeah, I mean, I think obviously to start off with, everyone was in survival mode, and you know, what is it that we need to do to actually keep keep working? So, and, and even from a mental health perspective, there's obviously the the um, putting the COVID controls in that everyone's needed to do. But you know, how do we actually make sure that if anyone is really having a difficult time, that we've got the right support in place? Um, so obviously, there's been times where new things have happened. We've had another lockdown, and things have had to change, and that survival mode has come back into place again. Um, but now we're kind of working with organisations to say like we need, we need to look beyond COVID and, and actually how do we move into this thriving phase where we can take some of these key learnings that we've had you know whether it's 
more flexible approach to the way that we work, if it's you know about appreciating individuals and their lives outside of work and how do we use that to actually make sure that our organisations are the best that they can be for people to work within. So we've kind of had a bit of a mixture. We work with, with some small organisations. So some of them have been you know at the, the kind of beginning of their journeys and, and putting in the right support systems in place with like access to occupational health. Um, but some of the larger ones are now looking at more uh, resilience type type processes where you know how do we help our people to deal with this uncertainty that we're still going through and what are some of the tools and techniques that we can give people to help them to get through to this next phase beyond that is now looking forward to what is the post-covid world going to look like and what can we you know do in our own organizations to make sure that we are you know thriving and being the best that we can be do you feel like there is more that can still be done, both sort of institutionally and across the board? How can these things be done and what and, and where? Yeah, I mean, I think I've had a lot of conversations with, with clients where they're saying, right, we need to be doing more. There must be more that we can be doing to try and support people. Um, and those organisations that have, you know, have, have done really well and got the right support networks in place. And so there's, there's a lot of things, you know, that you're doing that are really, really good. And you just got to keep on reinforcing the key things that you're doing about support. And, and how to access help if people need it. Um, and unfortunately, we can't do anything to change the uncertainty that we're all still facing and, and hopefully um, we'll be out of fairly soon. Um, so a lot of organisations have been desperate to try and do more, but also as well for a lot of people that, you know, there's, there's only so much that you can do that's going to really make a difference. Um, but I do think it's, it's kind of coming back to this point around, you know, forward looking and, and giving kind of the workforce some certainty of the future and hope for what it might look like. And, and I think where people are feeling so low at the moment, if there's some kind of glimmer of hope at the end where life is going to be better and, and obviously work can be better, then I think that's probably where a lot of organisations now need to try and focus their attention on so so we can all come out of this as quickly as possible and, and recover and get back to, to how we um how we were working pre-COVID or hopefully better than how we work in pre-COVID. Yeah and I mean what are your uh, hopes and visions for for how the industry will take care of, of both mental and physical health uh, now and after the pandemic? Well, I think, I mean, health is now on the agenda where it was kind of always the, the poorer side of health and safety. So I'm hoping that a lot of organisations will say, you know, keep that conversation going and, and make sure they're really looking at health risks from a from the COVID perspective, but also from, from their general activities and what they're doing on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, I mean, I think the construction industry has really shown its resilience and they've, you know, collaborated and, and worked together and, and achieved so much in such a short space of time time um, and I think if we try to take that for mental health and um, prevention of work-related mental health issues particularly um, also things like working with dust and fumes if we take the same approach that we've done, we've done for COVID and apply it to other hazards then you know hopefully this industry is going to be a really happy and healthy and positive place for lots of people to work and, and some of those shocking statistics that we know that are there will start to see those declining and and hopefully you know people want to come and work in construction it'll be a positive place to be. Jenny Armstrong from Construction Health and Wellbeing, talking with Constructive Voices, Matt Banks. Constructive Voices, the podcast for the construction people. Now, as economies look to rebuild after the impact of COVID, apprenticeships are once again being hailed to help young people into work. The stats show that young people have suffered a larger share of unemployment resulting from the pandemic, and apprenticeships offer one part of the solution. Let's welcome back our man on the ground, Peter Finn, who has plenty of experience of apprenticeships, don't you, Pete? 
Absolutely, Steve. Great to chat to you again. Yeah, like the whole industry has developed in a lot of different ways. And I think years ago, you know, you started off with a sweeping brush in your hand and you made your way up the ranks. And apprenticeships are a little bit like that, um, except that you get to do it in a very structured way with a, with a, an end goal and set dates that you can achieve at certain points. And I have to say, serving my apprenticeship was the start of really the game changer in my life because um, it gave me a dedicated structure to start off with. Obviously, coming out of school, a lot of my friends were going to uni and doing different things. But the advantage to being an apprentice is you actually get paid. So when you're going to uni, you have to have a, a part-time job. Whereas when you have an apprenticeship, you're going to work. Yes, you're you're starting off on, on the low rate and you're working your way up, but you're immediately getting a few pounds into your, your pocket, which always helps. But then you're also on a structure which is cl- fairly clearly set out for you. And you know, if you do what you've got to do at the end of that, you're going to be fully qualified in whatever trade or whatever apprenticeship that you're taking part in. So it's a really good one. And it gave me great focus. I kind of had my own little target set then. I nearly knew how much money I was going to be earning each year. I also knew then at the end of it that I was going to be fully qualified. So it it was great. And uh, I'm a big advocate of apprenticeships. I really think they're a very positive um, structure. and And I really do think the main thing that I like about it is the hands-on training that you get so you you know you can do the theory and you do have to do the, the theory side of an apprenticeship and i know some people can struggle with that but then you're getting the practical stuff as well and that's always the perfect mix for me i really like meeting somebody in any industry and i know that i've got hands-on experience because you know theory is one thing but practicality and reality is a whole nother thing you know yeah, oh, absolutely. You know what? I mean, my my background is is radio, and I was lucky enough to get in quite early on. So it wasn't an apprenticeship, but you know, I I learned a lot on the job. And a lot of people go to college, go to university, and that's absolutely brilliant for them. You know, whether it's in construction or whether it's in media. But exactly what you're saying, you know, so many people go through courses, but it doesn't really make sense until they're doing it. Absolutely, and you're also. You know, you get to make a few mistakes, and we'll we'll uh, we'll we'll come to that one in a while. Oh because, yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. No, look, I totally agree with everything you said there. It's that hands-on experience. Until you have feet on the ground, miles on the clock, and have actually experienced it hands-on, and have come across challenges, and have completed the challenges, and have worked away around those, that's how you learn. And I suppose that's what the apprenticeship structure gives you. It allows you the opportunity to gain experience while you're learning. And, you know, you're guided as well. You're not just thrown into the deep end. You're guided. You're not allowed the most dangerous tool immediately. You're shown how to use it. You'll watch someone else using it. And then you get to use it yourself. Then you get to learn the tricks as well, which make a good job a really good one. And, you know, it depends on, on who, who you've served your apprenticeship with. But as I do always say to, to, to guys that work for me, every single time that you work with a, a different tradesperson or, or, a, or a different operative, you will learn something off them. And it's up to you to learn what that is. Everybody has got strengths and everybody's got weaknesses. And if you're serving an apprenticeship and you get the opportunity to touch off a few different tradespeople, you're just you're just like a sponge soaking up all this really valuable information. And if you're clever about it, you can put that all in your own memory bank. And then when you come out of it, you can really put yourself into a very, very, very strong position going forward. Oh, absolutely. And you, and you know what? There's there's two other things that kind of strike me. And again, this comes from, from my experience in media, but also applies to apprenticeships in construction or whatever it may be, is that the first thing that you can't learn 
by either doing something online or, or, or even going to a college or university. You can't learn the culture. So site culture, you will only learn once you're on site, day in, day out, and learning how it all works. That, that, that's, that's, that's one thing. And the other thing is networking, isn't it? Because you don't know if you're going to meet you know, somebody who's coming in, you know, a, a, a contractor from another trade or whatever, and, and they think, wow, you know, that kid's bright. You know, I would love to hire them. The opportunities that open up are amazing. Yeah, hundred percent. Like, you know, you you, you get <laughs> when you're on a site and you get site banter going, you get an experience in life, not just in your trade. Believe me, but um, you know, look, it's all positive these days. The, the old days of, of crazy stuff happening at the Prince's is well gone, and um, you really do get to learn and you, you work within a team as well, which I always think is a fantastic thing. I've been lucky enough to be involved in a lot of sports over the years, and the best. Uh, teams and the people that you learn off the most are the people that work together as a team and as an apprentice obviously you start off at the lower part of of, of the, the the scale but you work your way up and week by week you're going to gain other people's trust and if you're sharp and if you're clever exactly what you said you're going to network with other people on the site and I always say to, to lads uh, to learn off the other trades as well watch what they're doing and a good trades person or, or anybody who's good at what they do will not only think about what element of work they're doing they'll think about the end result and that's something I always say there's no point in you putting in your door frame absolutely minim- uh, to the millimetre perfect when you know that the wall beside is already like one millimetre off you have to work with uh, people just make sure that your finished product at the end is what the client wants or is what, is what the end result has to be so you know it's great I, I really do think like I, I said it to, to I used to say it to my lads or any, anybody that worked with me or when I was serving my apprenticeship it's like your ticket to travel uh, abroad because construction happens in every uh country in the world and also going and working in these different countries obviously gives you more experience again but when you you go to a, a country and you can go straight in to any construction site and you go how are you doing it's pete here from ireland and i'm fully qualified carpenter you'll get a start very quickly and then obviously it's up to you to perform after that so I, i've had friends and i've done it myself where i've traveled abroad and uh, my friends like some of my friends did it for years where they would travel and they would just bounce from place to place, going from job to job. They would get a job much quicker than somebody who was maybe an accountant or a professional in in, in something, in some other industry, you know. It really is your ticket to freedom is what I like call it to the lads, you know. It gives you great opportunities because when you come out of your apprenticeship, you're still a young man. Like you've started early, so you get out of your uh, apprenticeship early. You can be in your early 20s and traveling and making very good money and getting to experience life so far. And then obviously you have the opportunity to come back to your base a little bit later and um, settle down and maybe set up your own business and do all those type of things. So it's a it's a really, really good start. And I think it's a legitimate option for people these days. Years ago, it was kind of frowned upon. Even, you know, when I was doing my apprenticeship, like I, I done okay in school and people were kind of saying to me, would you not go to university instead of, uh, you know, getting a trade? And I was just always happy. I loved being hands-on and I loved the idea of construction life. So I was always going ahead in that direction but I said it to them back then I said no I said there's no problem at all and I said you go and make your few quid and I said when you need your house built I'll come and build it for you and that's pretty yeah. much what's happening now what I would say from your experience there is that because you've done that because you were an apprentice you know you know how that works you know how it feels to be an apprentice and now you're a boss you know what those young apprentices coming into the business are feeling like you've done it that makes you a better employer of those apprentices. And, and as an employer, you know, the, the benefits to having apprentices, is, as you've kind of touched on already, they're huge, aren't they? Because you can mould those new employees, as they will hopefully become, 
in the shape that you want them. They haven't already been taught by somebody else how to do things. Yeah, 100%. You basically get the opportunity to mould them, I suppose, is a pretty much the, the, the right way to, to put it. Straight away, you set the guidelines out. And again, in, in the construction industry, we're very lucky because there is already uh, inductions there that people will do, safe pass courses and things like that, that people will already have an understanding of it. And then they're working you know, side by side with you. They know right down to where the tools go in the van, to what way we set stuff up, to how you need to clean uh, the site before, during and after, how you conduct yourself with clients, all of those things. You're learning all of those and you're learning it in a a practical, on the site, on the job way, but also in a protected way as well because you're always side by side with another tradesperson or or, or a a boss. And I feel as though it's a very uh, mutually beneficial situation because... Yes, when you start as apprentice, you're not on a very high rate, um, but you're still on enough money, especially if you start early, to be able to to live relatively comfortably. You obviously you're not going to buy a house in your first year apprenticeship, but you, you'll you'll certainly be able to uh, pay your bills, and then year by year you incrementally get more and more money, and then coming into your third and fourth year, you're you're obviously then getting very close to a fully qualified rate, which is which is excellent for somebody so young. I don't know many businesses that you would get to that point that quickly. Look, you know, from a, an employer's point of view, you get the benefit, and just being totally honest, you get the benefit of somebody who is going to be capable, especially in the earlier years, you're getting that person at um, a reduced rate. Now, some people base their businesses off that. And they, if, if I ever see a guy coming to site and he's got 10 apprentices, I'm going, right, hold on, there's something wrong here. But I love seeing two or three tradesmen with maybe you know one or two uh, apprentices with them as well. You can clearly see that there's a good team put together here and they're all coming, going to be thinking along the same lines and they're working together. And you can, it's, I, I, quite enjoy, I find it quite enjoyable to see lads and I kind of look on and I go, oh, look at that guy now. You can really see he's going to become a really good tradesman. Give him another couple of years of experience. So it's a, it's a win-win now, but then <laughs> you do get the uh, the slightly negative side of it that when you're training someone, it's like everything, you know what I mean? Make sure you don't screw that screw in too far and next minute they screw it in too far and there's windows cracking and there's different things that are happening. So there's lots of lots of stories like that that go 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 around. But usually what you end up at, at the end then, if you as an employer or as me, uh, me as an employer have done my job correctly, you end up with a, with a highly skilled person. And then obviously you have the option of does that... Uh, and apprentice want to stay on with you or do they want to go and travel and do what they've got to do yeah definitely and and you've touched on it there pete um, i will call this bit when apprentices go bad because <laughs> <laughs> what have you seen pete what what's gone disastrously wrong <laughs> well i've had loads i've had loads of uh you know simple small ones like you know just don't put the timber over there for whatever reason and then you come back and the timber's there and it's rained and then suddenly all <laughs> destroyed. They're, they're the simple ones that you can kind of, they, yeah. they will frustrate you but they wouldn't cause you too much problems. But I have a two fairly big ones. One was a job we were working on and there was a downpipe on a, on a job that was a very... Uh, a very important downpipe. It was a, it cost huge money to be made and it had been bespokely made and put into the into the building and it was there before we arrived and we were all told before we started whatever happens this downpipe, which I know sounds a bit strange, but this downpipe was like sacred and it couldn't be touched. So we were working away and the apprentice was working in that general area and he was tidying up and 
I started hearing this kind of banging noise and I was kind of saying, Jesus, that's very unusual. What is that noise, you know? So I could hear it bang, bang, bang. And then I started kind of, you know, my, my mind was kind of drifting to what area it was in. And then the next minute, I just realized exactly what was happening. I don't know what this apprentice had got into his head, but he had been told to clear the area up and he decided to clear the area up and start breaking down this sacred uh, <laughs> downpipe off the wall. And I caught him just about three quarters of the way through it. And he turned and his eyes looked at mine just as I got to the point where I, we could see each other. And he had the hammer uh, in his hand and he still, he couldn't stop the, his arm from swinging and he hit it one more time and it just cracked and fell apart in front of two of our eyes. Oh my goodness, I cannot tell you. Like I, I, it was, it was, it was fairly shocking stuff. Like shock waves went through the whole site. Oh my god! So then I had to control it, and then I, I managed it to, to get another one made, and I, and I got to replace it, and I didn't actually tell anybody about it on, until the job was finished, and then I told them and I showed them, and in fairness, they just went, "Oh, well, it's exactly the way that it was. I didn't even know, so it's okay." But that cost me quite a few quid, quite a lot of sleepless nights, and a lot of stress, all simply because my apprentice decided to clean up the place a little bit further than he wanted it. And I suppose one other quick story, uh, you know, the way I, I, I do the TV show, we, uh, we, yeah. were, we were doing, <laughs> we were doing one of the shows and really, you know, time is of the essence on those jobs. If such a short window of opportunity to get so much work done that breaking something or doing something wrong, it has a really negative effect and it can really cause a lot of stress and hassle. So we had fitted this hub, a really high end hub and, it was fitted into the worktop and uh, it had taken us about three hours actually by the time we cut it all out and we'd connected it. It was, it was uh, uh, one of the newer type hobs that they actually extract out underneath rather than the, the usual extraction from the top. And um, we had it all done and I said to the apprentice, I said, okay, I said, cover that up now. And I said, whatever you do, do not uh, stand on that or put anything on it. Just make sure it's covered up, make sure everybody knows. And I walked outside to, to uh, collect something or do something else. And I walked back in and the apprentice was standing on the counter with one foot on the counter and one foot on the hob. It was covered with a, with, with a something very small and he was removing something above it. And I said to him, I said, what are you doing? He goes, oh no, it's grand, it's covered. I said, you've got like a piece of like, it was like a piece of cloth on it. I said, that's not covered. And he goes, oh no, it's fine, it's fine. And when two of us went over and he and he he, uh, he he took off the cover and he 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 literally a footprint was the only way to describe it right in the middle of this glass hall. Oh, well, I'm not caught yet. I could have absolutely killed him at that point. But again, we just had to scramble. We had to go and get a new one, get it replaced, and get it in, and all during this crazy period of time. So there are two little indicators of what can happen. But then you got loads of positive <laughs> stuff there as well, where you know coming into the third and fourth year of someone's apprenticeship, you can actually say to them, okay, listen this is your first opportunity. I'm going to let you cut that roof or I'm going to let you do this. See how you go with it. Let's, let's, let's see how you go. And if you, if that goes well for you, then we can give you more, more responsibilities and more opportunities going forward. But, uh, there's always highs and lows when it comes to apprenticeships, but I, I can tell you now the two lads, one of them will never take a, a downpipe off the wall again. And another guy, I don't think he'll ever uh, <laughs> go, go near a hop again in his life, you know? And I, and I guess that's one of those moments where, you know, your experience having been an apprentice kind of kicks in you know your first reaction is well shock and everything goes into slow motion when those moments happen and then maybe there's the you you feel the sort of anger rising but you know something kicks in and you go hang on this could have been me back when i was doing my apprenticeship 
Yeah, absolutely. And that, that is the truth of it. And come here, look, I'd love to say that I sailed through my apprenticeship without making any mistakes. I can guarantee you, you know, my my uh, my boss that gave me my apprenticeship is probably going to be sort of telling somebody else a similar story that I did back then as well, you know. So, no, I know, look, it, it, it's, it's all good. And I suppose the main thing is there, you know, that apprentice got the opportunity to learn not to do those things, but at my cost, but he, 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 he did. And another thing actually then is guys then when they get trained and when they get skilled, they get the opportunity to start doing a couple of their own jobs, you know, like Nixers is what we would call them. So they go and they get to, you know, at the weekends, maybe start off doing a job at home for their mother or, or, you know, whatever. And then the network starts spreading a bit further and they get to do a couple of their own jobs. And again, I love when they start doing that because that's when they learn as well, really. It's their first time taking the steps out into the big bad world on their own. But also they understand then they've probably given somebody a price on it and then they have to try and get the job done within that price. Whereas when they're working for me or for an employer, they obviously have all those costs covered and they don't have to think about those things. So I always think that's a great learning experience for somebody to do. If, if they think it's going to take them a day and it takes them two days, then they suddenly realize, oh, right, so I put a price in and I thought I was going to get it done in a day, but it took me two days, so therefore that's half the amount of money. And I think the penny drops with them then when they're back on site. Yeah, definitely. Just before we finish on this topic, and I'm not, I'm not kind of throwing this in as like a, a quick throwaway because it's not important because it is. I'm actually thinking this is probably something we need to talk about in a much bigger way in a, in a future episode. But the industry is still largely dominated by men. Do you get applications from girls who want to be uh, apprentices, or is is that just not? Is the pipeline just not there? I'm delighted that you said it because it came into my head once or twice, and I just didn't actually get back to saying it. This is not just for men. This is not just for lads. Like, there's no doubt about it. There is huge opportunity for uh, female apprentices and female tradespersons. Like, uh, some of the best tradespeople can be women, actually, because they think about uh, think about it from a different approach. Um, they look at things slightly different than men do, as we would know, Steve. Look, percentages are, are, are obviously more predominantly men that are working on, on construction sites, in, in particular, the heavy lifting type jobs. But that is changing and opportunities in construction are changing all the time to balance it out a bit better. And um, like I know there's, there's a huge amount of, of uh, female engineers um, out there and have been for quite a long time. And there's a couple of trades that I've seen, electricians and painters in particular, you see quite a lot of of uh, females in those trades. And again, I, I actually really like seeing that because um, you get a different mentality and you get a different approach to what's being done. And um, look, you know, the world has changed in those ways. It's not the old school breakfast roll kind of, you know, builder, dirty talking attitude. That's gone. Like the machoism in, in construction is still there a little bit, but it's certainly changing. And, um, you know, look, the construction industry has been very welcoming to all walks of life. And it's very simple because we need all walks of life in construction and we need all as many contributions from as many different people and in, 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 in all different ways really can help so um yeah look again i think it's a it's a very uh good option for girls out there that might be listening to 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 go for a trade i would recommend you know you pick your trade uh to suit yourself as well because some of some of the jobs can be extremely physically taxing just you know be careful but again a lot of that has changed as well in terms of the weights that people are expected to lift and and be involved in now have changed if you go on social media you can see quite a few uh, female tradespeople have done really well from it and, and have uh, have you know really strong following um, as well and I think it's great to see I really do I think it's I think it's a, a huge contribution to construction to, to start you know uh, getting more females involved in all aspects of construction. 
Brilliant. Cheers, Pete. We'll talk again next time. Cheers, mate. Talk to you soon. This is Constructive Voices. Plastic usage is one of the big issues that needs to be addressed to protect our environment, and it's one that the construction industry can play a major role in due to the large amount of plastic it uses and plastic waste it generates. And one veteran of the industry is keen to inspire the change in practice that's needed. He's Neil Maxwell, whose business is mostly focused in the northwest of England. He was on a 60th birthday trip when he had a revelation that led him to create an organisation called Changing Streams. Constructive Voices journalist Henry MacDonald takes up the story. He basically had a route of Damascus conversion whilst on this holiday of a lifetime on this cruise ship around the Arctic. It was packed with uh, scientists, experts on the environment, experts on pollution and climate change. So there were lectures as well as, you know, different social occasions on the ship. And they actually went out onto icebergs and onto ice sheets. But they were shown the upshot of plastic pollution in the oceans. And Mr. Maxwell was shocked at the level of plastic pollution. You know, for example, they, they were showing pictures of walruses and whales and so on, and showing their stomachs after autopsies and things like that. They had ingested plastic pollution, even in small levels, which killed a lot of the wildlife. Just to give you a global picture of what plastic production is doing, it isn't just polluting oceans and endangering sea life in the Arctic and other, in other parts of the world, even in, in warmer climates. It's also adding to greenhouse gases. A report by the Centre for International Environment Law in 2019 said that plastic production and incineration will add over 850 million metric tonnes of greenhouse gases to the atmosphere. They say that's the equivalent of emissions from 189 coal-fired power plants. 189 coal-fired power plants. And if this continued, these emissions by 2050, it's 10 years after uh, Neil Maxwell's aim to reduce plastic in the industry to zero, it could rise to 2.8 billion metric tonnes. In other words, it's going up. So even though we're closing a lot of coal-fired power stations around the world, the incineration and production of plastic is adding to greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. So... It's a major player, not just in terms of pollution, but also climate change itself. So, Henry, this was a huge wake-up call for Neil, but while we're all often surprised and outraged by things that are harming our world but don't always take action, Neil did. He investigated his own business and found out that the British construction industry, it's estimated trades in about 50,000 tonnes of plastic waste each year. And he was quite shocked by that. Now, there was another road to Damascus uh, moment when he got back from the Arctic Circle to Liverpool. He was in his native city and he was in a supermarket and he saw all the products that were covered by plastic, having been told about the damage it's doing to ocean life. He basically ran out of the store. He, He was so frustrated and angry about the use of plastic. But he thought, well, he has to do something different. And the only thing he can do to make a difference is to look at his own industry, uh, where he's earned a living for the last three decades. So we founded this non-profit organization last year called Changing Streams. He's drawn up a program 
for the construction industry. And the aim is to make British construction plastic-free by 2040. He's teamed up with a number of academics from the University of Liverpool, from the School of Environmental Science, oceanographers, people involved in monitoring the climate and monitoring pollution. And they've come up with a couple of basic steps to reduce the production of plastic waste in the building industry. As he dug deeper into the use of plastic, Neil was shocked by its prolific use in something the industry and millions of consumers use every day, paint. Plastic was not always in paint. I mean, plastic is, is an invention from the, from the 1950s from a US multinational. And so on the back of that, he proposes the establishment of a traffic light guide to warn which paints contain plastics. There are some paints on the shelves of DIY stores and suppliers that don't contain plastic. So he, he wants a traffic light system printed on tins of paint to dissuade, for example, DIY consumers even, or painters and decorators and so on, tell them which paints contain plastic and which don't. What they're also doing is proposing the end of use for things like plastic wrapping for building materials like bricks and cladding. And so they're looking at alternatives. For instance, bamboo was suggested as one potential for wrapping up building materials. They're also planning to build a template house, probably within the confines of the university, that's made entirely without plastic. Something that can be studied as a model for housing in the future, which will not have the byproduct of plastic pollution. One argument Neil and others put forward for shifting away from using plastic in the construction industry is that until around the 1950s, it wasn't used because it wasn't widely available. And we have moved away from other harmful materials, notably asbestos, due to its negative impact on health. The key question, of course, is what's it going to cost? And I think that is his biggest hurdle he has to climb over, which is, I mean, can he persuade hard-headed, business-minded, profit-driven fellow builders like himself to move towards a plastic-free industry? One of the things they will be doing is, that, as well as drawing up this charter to make the industry plastic-free, starting with paint, for example, is petitioning, A, the government, future governments, to adopt this as legally binding regulations, in the same way they have done so over things like asbestos. But also to petition, for example, large pension fund providers, which finance construction in certain areas, to adopt the charter as well. There will be a campaigning aspect to changing streams to persuade political leaders and industry leaders that this is the way the way forward. Uh, and you know, given the focus on green energy, renewables, the advance of the electric car, and so on, we, we see that going in, in, in that in a green direction anyway. And he he thinks he's part of that. He's surfing that wave. I also spoke to Dr. Gareth Abrahams, who's working with Neil Maxwell. And he points out that the, the university in Liverpool are actually aiming to construct some plastic-free accommodation on its campus. And when I was last there, but just before the, the pandemic broke out, you could hardly hear yourself think or speak the amount of drilling going on and work going on uh, on, on campus. So one of their projects, as I say, is to create the first ever plastic-neutral commercially viable house because they want to show the building industry this can be done and through things like coating paint and other 
materials, they want to change consumer behaviour, and that includes consumers who are buying houses or renting houses, and indeed landlords as well. That's Constructive Voices' Henry MacDonald with some real food for thought. And if you have comments to make on that or anything else you've heard or want to hear on the podcast, then get in touch through our website, constructive-voices.com, or find us on social media. Next time, we'll talk about mixed reality and renovations, among other topics. New episodes are out twice a month, with the next one at the start of May. So follow or subscribe on your favourite podcast app to make sure you don't miss a thing. And don't forget, we'd really appreciate reviews and ratings too. Until next time, thanks for listening. You're really helping us build something. Constructive Voices, brought to you by Lewis Access. British-made scaffold towers and access products.